college has sort of become a shopping mall. You know, students are kind of told, follow your preferences, and we confuse that with finding yourself. That's actually students coming in with what they already think they want, and colleges providing it as if students are consumers, rather than opening up the worlds of the arts and sciences so students can really have their minds blown and see the world from totally new vistas. And if you do that well, students can't help but confront questions about themselves and their world because that's what the arts and sciences ask people to do. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Brad. Hey, now. It's good to see you. Good to hear your voice. Thanks for being here. We have with us a guest who our colleagues reached out and recommended that we connect with and bring on to the show. It's always a blessing when that happens, when we're you know pushed to reach out to somebody. So we're welcoming to the show Johan Neem. Johan Neem is a historian of the American Revolution and the early American Republic. His most recent book is What's the Point of College? Seeking Purpose in an Age of Reform. He is also the author of Democracy Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America, which examines the origins and purposes of American public education between the Revolution and the Civil War. His first book, Creating a Nation of Joiners, published by Harvard University Press, examines the development of civil society in Massachusetts after American independence. Neem is a professor of history at Western Washington University and editor of the Journal of the Early Republic. He is an active contributor to the conversation on higher education reform. Welcome, Johan. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. We read your article in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, and as I mentioned, our colleagues did too, and we kind of got together and said, we have got to get him on the show. So thank you for saying yes. I'm really excited. On our show, we like to begin with some getting to know you questions. So I'm going to turn it over to Brad to get started. Okay, thanks. Johan, it's obvious you're a very serious scholar from all the work that you've done. But I'm assuming there must be a fun side to Johan. <laughs> what do you do for fun? Yeah, that's a mistake a lot of people make. They assume there's a fun side to Johan. Um, <laughs> and, and as if being a serious scholar is not fun. I play guitar badly. Um, and... <laughs> But I actually use that to empathize with my students. You know? <laughs> For years, I see people pick up the guitar and six months later, they're like brilliant. And I'm for years working away. So I'm a bad guitar player and I'm a baseball dad. I drive to and oh, from practices okay. and games for two kids. So I spend a lot of time shuttling kids around to baseball and talking to parents and, <laughs> you know, when the Northwest becomes sunny, which is not quite yet. <laughs> enjoying the sunshine. So when you pick up your axe, what kind of songs do you play? Oh, that's too embarrassing to say. I mean, <laughs> some folk, but I go back to my 80s metal days, Ooh. you know, and I Brad try is to, loving you know, this. Yeah, when I was in eighth grade or middle school, I guess, I tried to learn all of Def Leppard's hysteria, um, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> oh, never well, did it well, but you know. We're kindred so spirits. Of, we're kindred yeah. spirits. But then a lot of kind of Americana kind of stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. 
You mentioned empathy with your students, and I know our listeners can't see you. We can see you now using Zoom, and you have the word empathy actually right behind your head, hanging on a wall, I think. So must be Yeah, I have there. three words. They're my three words to remind me how to write history. Particular, history is about particular things. Imagination, you've got to trust the images you see, and empathy, you, you empathize with the people you're writing about. Oh, yeah, it's a cool. reminder to me, but also to my students. Yeah. You know, it might not be a bad idea for all of us to think of three words that guide our actions, regardless of what we're doing, and keep yeah. reminding ourselves of those three words. I think just yesterday or two days ago, maybe Mike Jones, our producer for the podcast, was just sharing that in his family, they choose words for the year and then they remind each other of those words and kind of fixate on them. So, and I think the word practice. for this year for him was obnoxious, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah. <Virtually> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Speaking of students and student empathy, what would your students be surprised to learn about you? I think the thing that always surprises them most is that I'm human. And I think they have an image of professors that we sort of drop down out of the sky and are these kind of robotic intellectual machines. So yeah, so I talk to them about my struggles learning guitar. They're surprised that I, you know, would ever listen to 80s metal because they're not surprised when I tell them that I wasn't the coolest kid in school. <laughs> so I'm always a little kind of disheartened, you know, they say, and I say, you know, you may be surprised to learn this, but I actually wasn't the coolest kid in my school and <laughs> none of them act surprised, you know, so, but I think I try to find ways, even when we're reading other authors to try to point out, these are human beings writing things they care about and trying to find the spirit of it and realize that this is not so abstract as you think is really important. But so I share little stories about myself like that. And yeah. Just for added context, do you teach primarily on site or online or some combination? Pandemic aside fully face-to-face -face on yeah, campus. Yeah, yeah, um, thanks. Yeah, and I teach early American history and also a class called Going to College in America, which is an interdisciplinary class about what has college been for, what is it for, what might it look like in the future. Oh, which, that. oh, awesome. awesome, yeah. Yeah, it's a way to sort of help students find a way to design their own mission because they've not heard a lot of the different arguments. And I try to give a lot of different perspectives and then students can make choices about what the kind of education they want, you know, so... So is that an elective course? Yeah, I mean, it counts for humanities general ed requirement, but, you know, students select into it. But okay. I get a very diverse range of students than I do in, like, the introduction to U.S. history. Interesting. Because it's a class of really general education in that sense, you know. That's awesome. So, yeah, it's really fun. So who would you say are some of your favorite characters from history? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I write about and I really admire Thomas Jefferson. But, you know, as the more I spend time with him, the less I think I would like him. Hmm. And this is how I think about him. You know, all uncles we know aside, I think of him as this really smart and successful, but old uncle who figured a lot of things out when they were young and were used to being able to tell people what to do, but then kind of stuck to their ideas as they're aged and didn't really want to change with the times. It became more dogmatic. And at some point you're like, I love my uncle. And he did so much in his life. <laughs> But like, really, come on, you know? Don't really and want so, to hang out with him. Yeah, so now then I think of him more as a character and I can sort of imagine being in the room with him as he got older and being like, I don't know, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, you're, you're super smart and I admire <laughs> what you've done and your principles are good in most things. I mean, obviously your racism not, but you did a lot of good and so. But as Jefferson got older and crotchetier, I think it's not really a character, but a group of characters I admire 
are the abolitionists and not the famous ones, mm. but the ones who kind of just staffed the committees and did the work in town after town. And they don't really get remembered, but they were kind of the backbone of a movement. And I think we forget, I mean, if one was black or a woman, of course, you took a big risk being an abolitionist, but even the white men were taking a risk. I mean, sometimes risking violence. And I think it's extraordinary that in some ways democracy works not because of the Jeffersons or the names we remember, but because ordinary people joined a committee. Mm. And I think that's really powerful. So I guess that's the other kind of group of people I admire, those people who just join committees. And maybe because I'm an academic and I have to be on lots of committees, <laughs> I'm, aware, you know, I'm aware of the kind of daily work, but in a way that's kind of what democracy is. It's those people who join a committee and help sort of sustain something, you know? So let's get on to our discussion topics. One of the things you talk about is the purpose of higher education. So what is the purpose of higher education in the 21st century? That's a good question. And I think what's interesting about that question is the presumption that because we're in the 21st century, somehow that means we need a new purpose. <laughs> um, as if the turning of that dial or the calendar. I mean, I think on one hand, the purpose is complicated. When we mean higher education, if we mean post-secondary education, mm -hmm. there's a whole diversity of purposes. Mm. For me, I guess, and there's a whole diversity of institutions from career colleges and apprenticeship programs, you know, to Christian colleges and liberal arts colleges and but for me, like if I'm thinking about a four-year undergraduate education, the primary purpose, I think, is to develop students as intellectuals, to develop their curiosity, their intellectual virtues, as it were, their capacity to grapple with important questions about the human and natural worlds, and then the skills and knowledge that will help them develop better ideas as they're grappling with these questions. And so really, it's an intellectual education. It's an education in learning to sort of think about the world in new ways with new tools and new knowledge that normally wouldn't happen. So how do you think we're doing in that regard in terms of, if you think about critical thinking, for example, if you talk to students, they will often say, well, we learn these things and we regurgitate them and then we forget them. How are we doing in terms of actually teaching students how to learn and how to think? I mean, I think learning is co-produced, right? Mm. And professors have to do a good job as teachers and students have to go do a good job as students for this to work. It's a collective endeavor. I do think, you know, professors' teaching styles have changed over the years to be much more engaged. I know that I almost never lecture, so people still have this idea that historians get on a stage and just lecture at people, but we don't. <laughs> you know, there's much more discussion, much more engaged. I do a lot of Socratic work that asks students to really kind of dig deeper and use their minds in class, you know, mm. so the class is an active thinking space. So on one hand, we could do better. On the other hand, I think a lot of change has happened over the last few decades. The thing I think that troubles me about critical thinking as a framework is there's an assumption made that critical thinking can be abstracted from content. And that's just not true. You know, that we learn to think critically by using material and we learn that material more deeply and hold it in our memories more effectively if we've thought about it. And so there's this false claim that critical thinking is what matters, where as opposed to critical thinking about history or critical thinking about chemistry or critical thinking about psychology. And cognitive scientists have shown that that doesn't really work. People think critically about things and they need some knowledge and they need some skills and they need some practice to do so. 
So I guess for me, that's what critical thinking is. When it comes to, you described the purpose of higher education for you and kind of at large, but for a student entering into that experience, what opportunities are there for them to define their own purpose as they engage in their education? Well, I think ideally there should be lots of opportunities, but those opportunities are bounded. If college is for intellectual exploration, then to me, that means that the heart and soul of a college education are the liberal arts and sciences. And if that's the case, the source of exploration should be through the disciplines in the arts and sciences. So I think, you know, college has sort of become a shopping mall. You know, students are kind of told, follow your preferences. And we confuse that with finding yourself. But that's actually students coming in with what they already think they want and colleges providing it as if students are consumers, rather than opening up the worlds of the arts and sciences so students can really have their minds blown and see the world from totally new vistas. And if you do that well, students can't help but confront questions about themselves and their world Mm. because that's what the arts and sciences ask people to do, whether it's chemistry or physics or history or literature or philosophy or psychology, right? In different ways, they open up opportunities that transform a person. So those are the invitations for students to explore about themselves. But I think we deny a lot of students those invitations by providing all kinds of other options that allow students to think, well, this is what I already think is important. So I'm just going to pursue that path. So to follow that up a little bit, then I I think in terms of history, certainly your students need to learn certain landmarks in the history of the United States, for example. Sure. But I'm assuming you're probably also helping them to think like historians as they confront that information. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so here's an example, right? Just a concrete example. I teach this introductory survey, U.S. to the Civil War, starts with the indigenous peoples and European contact and goes up through the Civil War. And my first unit is where does American history begin? And we read about the Wampanoag and then the pilgrims arriving. We read about the Puritans. We read about the Powhatan Confederacy that existed when the Jamestown settlers came. We read about what was going on in Africa. Sometimes we've read about early Spanish exploration in Puerto Rico. So they're learning a lot of content about different parts of early America. And then the first paper that I have them do is, where would you start American history? And they never say, well, you're the expert. And I say, yes, but any of these are possible correct answers, but they lead to very different stories. But none of them are lies if you make a good case. Like we're not making up evidence. So helping them see how narratives work and how these stories of America are constructed. And if they're constructed differently, they have different kind of moral valences But that doesn't mean one is true and one is a lie or one person is being honest. It means that judgments are being made and and to sort of be attentive to those kinds of judgments. So that kind of thinking, as well as learning to see the world through time, which is not natural, Mm -hmm. you know, most people don't, are kind of, we hope, are the things students take from even an introductory class. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a pause right here. We'll be back next week for part two with Johan Neem. But for now, please, as you break and wait for next week's episode, visit our website, digitaltolearn.com, for resources and links to the research that we've been describing. See you next week. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. 
always keep learning.